0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net.
1: Thanks for coming back tonight. I'm sure more will be coming in. What a great turnout. Phyllis, you must have scored today. Really good. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get out of the way, and Phyllis was, uh, anybody get the sense that she could have talked a little bit more this morning? <laughs> hey, do you feel like she got to the end of her notes? Had nothing left? No, she's got a lot more left, about 30 hours more left, but she's going to take... I want her, before we do the Q&A, because I know you guys have questions, I want her to feel comfortable to kind of pick up where you left off and kind of tidy that up, and then you can yeah. invite us into the process. I was just telling Stan, I think
2: it's awful to not...
1: Oh, yes.
2: <laughs> I almost forgot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless. Bless her heart. Bless her heart. Yep. <laughs> Granny was a good one. Granny. <laughs> it, it's awful to not have a chance to do a Q&A or to at least rise up and say, that's boo honky. I don't believe a word you just said or, or prove it or, or whatever. Uh, but I did have this sense of uneasiness uh, at the end of both sessions that there were a few things that really, they're about, three, four hours worth of stuff that needs to be said before I can go home comfortably. But we'll try to get it down to about 25 minutes. Uh, the first the first thing I want to say, I want to finish the sociological cascade uh, since I got it started. And that's quick and easy. But before I do that, I want to make it real sure, uh, real clear, what we're talking about when we're talking about Scripture. Uh, there's absolutely, there's no question that uh, Luther and company put Protestant, uh, I mean, put... Um, Sola Scriptura in the place of authority. That's, you know, that's pure history. It's also not their fault that it morphed over into Protestant inerrancy. And the problem really is inerrancy. And there's no question about that being the problem. But I need to be real clear that we all understand emergence by and large. And we're talking about thousands of people. You know, I'm painting with a really big brush here. Uh, There are all kinds of variations, but 99% of emergence, I'd say, of the thousands of people who are emergence Christians would fight you to the death over the fact that scripture is actually true. So we need to be very clear about where they are, while they are working on and while we are helping them work on the question or the answer to the question, where now is the authority? Their theologians, and many of their theologians are women, by the way. It's it's fascinating to watch some brilliant theologians working right now. Most of their theologians will say that when we answer the authority question, one part of it is going to be Scripture. But then they go on and say, because Scripture is actually true and not necessarily factually. And it sounds like they're playing with words, and they're not. They're making an important distinction, and the only way I know to make that distinction is to tell a story, not because I think stories are wonderful, which I do, but simply because I don't know any other way to get at it. Uh, When I tell this story, I want you to know it really did happen to me. It is, by darn, my story, in other words, okay? But you have already heard it five million times on YouTube in all probability, or you've heard it from the pulpit, which amuses me to death because... So many pastors now don't know how to do the difference either without using my story. The thing, as a a reformed academic or a recovering academic or whatever I am, it's a condition nobody ever gets over, but, you know, no citation. So every once in a while I say, they're using my story and they're not giving me any citation. I was in National Cathedral, I don't know, four or five years ago, and the homilist whom I knew got up and did this lovely sermon and he used my story without any credit at all. And I thought, you're not going to get away with this, buddy. So as we were pressing the flesh leaving, uh, I shook his hand and said, copper, out of the corner of my mouth. And out of the corner of his, without dropping a stitch, he said, didn't see you out there. And went right on shaking hands, you know. (laughs) I was doing the, the Presbyterian clergy for the Senate of Washington State about six months ago. And one of the clergy who was fairly young and didn't realize I was teasing about credit and all of that came up afterwards and said, I am so sorry. I have used that story at least five times, I know, in my sermons. And I never said a word about you. And I said, come on, I'm kidding. I don't care whether it's a story, for goodness sakes. Citation isn't necessary. And he said, well, but I do know where I heard it. And I said, where? And he said, Marcus Borg told it in the cathedral, and he didn't cite you either. And I thought, now that's different. When Borg starts copying my stuff, then, you know, we, we should do something about it. But anyway. Uh, It goes like this, and and it's been told so many times because it's the best way I know to get at it, uh, and I'm pleased that it goes. Uh, In 1992, I think it was, yeah, 20 some odd years ago, um, I was asked by the Episcopal Cathedral in Atlanta uh, to come talk about the virgin birth. And in the early 90s, the virgin birth was the hot point to decide whether you were Christian or not. If you believed it happened and was historically true, you were in. If you didn't, you were out, poor baby. Uh, and it was just that clear. And Episcopalians don't like that. The middle of the road is where all Episcopalians in most accidents happen. And they just, <laughs> they just don't like that. So they wanted somebody to put it in the middle. So I did my shtick, and it was an evening supper meeting for the adults. And the young people were doing the supper And as I started talking, of course, they started cleaning up the supper. And there was this kid in back, 16 years old, I would bet, no more than 17 anyway. The longer I talked, the slower he scraped until finally he just quit and went and sat down on the back row. And when it was all over and the adults had all gone, the kid was still sitting there. And I went back and said, how are you? And he said, I'm fine. And I said, can I help you? And he said, I don't know. And I said, why? And he said, well, I, I don't really understand. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, I've made a heretic right here before he even gets through puberty. But, and I said, uh, what don't you understand? He said, I don't understand about them. And he pointed to the chairs where the adults had been. And I said, what about them? And he said, I don't understand their trouble and their problem with the virgin birth. It's so absolutely beautiful, it has to be true whether it happened or not. That's actual. If you can make that distinction, it is so absolutely beautiful, it has to be true whether it happened or not. Now, there are all kinds of dragons in those woods. There's the and heresy and that kind of thing. But that's what they mean by actuality. That's why they will go to the what, Hustings saying the Bible is actually true. It is actually inspired. It is. But then they will go farther and say, and I've, I've heard them do it many a time, Don't you think that there is a huge amount of human arrogance in thinking that you can take the words of God Almighty and reduce them to something that's logical in your head? And isn't it odd that you think that God, who is outside of time and the creator of time, can be forced into your time schedule? Doesn't that seem to you a little arrogant? And they'll walk away. They'll walk away. So that the scripture is absolutely central to emergence Christianity. There's no question about that. It's just that it's actually true and doesn't have to be factually, which is not a rhetorical fix. It's a sincere attempt to state the difference. And if you can figure it out, then you've got some sense of what it is they're talking about. But Scripture, they will fight you to the... Yeah, they will defend the Scripture right to the to blood itself, but not inerrancy. Because inerrancy, basically, by their definition, is a product of the human intellect uh, and not of God. Uh, and, so they're, and they're not playing with words. They're, they're very clear about it. Now, what I did today uh, with both groups... Uh, more or less, if I can remember what I did, was we were trying to do a sociological cascade through the peri-emergence just to show you some of the things that happened. Um, And because the sociological one is the hottest one right now, what the peri-emergence was about was the disestablishment of of, of sola scriptura or of Protestant inerrancy. It was the disenfranchisement of inerrancy as the absolute authority. That's what it was, that's what it is, that's what it has been. The bringing it out of that into some other authority that seems more biblical and more Christian than inerrancy. And so it has attacked thing after thing. And you can look at it politically, you can look at it militarily, you can look at all, but I chose to do it sociologically this morning. And we did, with one group, we had to jump divorce. With another group, we did it. But you can go from the issue of slavery, which clearly is permitted in the Bible, to the issue of uh, gender equality, which clearly is forbidden in the Bible, if you really look at it literally. Uh, and then we go on uh, to... Uh, Divorce, which we did not touch with one group, which clearly also is not there, and which brought about the introduction, as I said this morning, among emergence theologians of what they call Micah 6-8 theology. That is, ultimately, in deciding what's right and what's wrong in human conduct, as we evolve and as we change, in deciding what's right and what's wrong, we have to go to Micah 6 Micah 6.8 theology is the only way we can be fully Christian in the way that Jesus Christ would have us be. What does the Lord thy God require of thee? That you love mercy, act justly, and walk humbly with your God. And on that basis, they say, many of our rules just go away especially that walking humbly with your God. And then they cite time after time when our Lord himself broke the rules. And we all know it. We, we revel in the fact that he broke the rules a few times, you know. And he broke them on the basis of Micah 6.8. And they will say because we are as a species evolving, we're changing. Our understandings theologically are growing as, pray God, they can, will continue to do. And therefore, we, we have to understand Micah 6.8 is the overriding theology. And so the one thing I did not get to when we were doing the sociological thing, we did the gender equality, we did the birth control pill, we did the change in the home. The last puck, the last playing piece in an enormously dangerous and fatal game occurs in the sociological cascade. Protestant inerrancy has one piece left to play before it is put away entirely. And that is the gay, lesbian, bi, and trans issue. And that's why I wanted to do the sociological one. We can go from divorce and all of that straight up to to 1969 and Stonewall. And at Stonewall, our gay, lesbian, bi, and trans brothers and sisters said, we too were going to have a place at the table. Now, we're tired of it. Apply your Micah 6-8 to us also. And they cited quite correctly, according to whom you're quoting, either 9 or 13% of our brothers and sisters in Christ or out of Christ, just our fellow Americans, are gay, lesbian, bi, or trans. That's an awful lot of people to say God made a mistake on. It truly is an awful lot of people to say that he made a mistake on. And so they began to lobby, if you will. They began to talk to each other. They began to play... And when we solve that problem, and if you're watching the news at all, you're aware it's almost solved. Last week, the Presbyterian Church USA agreed to go forth and and ordain. Yes, absolutely, Uh, Presbyterian down here, raising her. Yeah, uh, agreed to to reinstate a couple of clergy they had disordained, if you will, uh, and to allow uh, marriage, same-sex marriages. uh, the Methodist Church did something similar about two weeks before that. It's, it's almost all over. Nonetheless, it's still in our face. And the, theor- the, the fear, the anxiety, the racket, the conversation, I would submit to you, is not about gay, lesbian, bi, and trans. It's about the fact that when we saw this one, we have no more pieces to play sola scriptura, Protestant inerrancy with that's the that's what's on the table if we change this there's nothing else to use there's no other no other leg for the argument to stand on and that's why it matters now having said that and i i don't know where you come from on the issue i don't Really care? It certainly isn't pertinent right now. I don't mind your knowing where I uh, come from. I served for 10 years at the altar with the best priest I have ever known, um, who had been in a committed relationship, I don't even know how many years, with the best-looking man I have ever seen. It was such a waste of man flesh. You have no idea. <laughs> Just kills me. I'm serious. I could not be more serious than this. And... and and the deal was and still is. They live in England now. The deal was and still is. If they ever split up, I get first dibs on Chris. Honest to goodness. You're never too old to hope. But, but wonderful guy. Love him to death. We used to go to lunch and talk about what, what anyway. Uh, we did. We did. Uh, and I was in that, serving in that uh, congregation uh, for those 10 years uh, under the orders of our bishop, uh, simply because uh, only, uh, well, about 85% of our members were gay, lesbian, bi, or trans. Uh, and only about 15% of us were hetero. It was the only church within about a 100 mile radius where gay, lesbian, bi, and trans could, uh, you know, 15 years ago, could actually come uh, and worship openly for what they were in every way. Um, And uh, some of our trans, as they would go through the the procedures, the awful procedures surgically and chemically, uh, would drive some of them 100 miles into church and 100 miles back. I knew several that would do that. And then come on Wednesday night. It mattered that much to them to be in Christian community. Um, and so I always, I always feel that we need to say at just this juncture that, bi, that, that gay and, and lesbian is almost solved. The thing that's not solved is the bi and the trans, and especially the trans. And I call them to your mercy and to your prayerful consideration. Um, when one is near the bottom of the barrel, it's always lovely to have somebody just a little bit lower and even some of my gay and lesbian friends um, have, have not exerted what I would call Christian charity uh, completely in the direction of some of my trans and bi friends, uh, especially my trans. Um, and because there were many trans in that, in that congregation, I developed a real concern for them and for the horror of being in a body that isn't where your psyche is, the being in something that's different from what you are. And I always remember that uh, we had a beautiful young person, uh, 21 years old, named Katrina. Gorgeous, gorgeous woman with beard and a penis and boobs and curly hair and the whole nine yards. She was a hermaphrodite. Um, And one Sunday after service, uh, we were shaking hands and I was there with the priest and she said to me, I'm going back on the streets tomorrow night. And I said, Katrina, what are you talking about? And she said, I don't have any money. I can't support myself. And I'll never have enough money to get one of these fixed. And so I'm going back on the streets. And I said, let us, let the church help you. We had supported her for about 13 months. And she said, no, I've lived off of you all. And now I know there's never going to be money to fix me. And so I'm going to go back on the streets. And I said, then get a job. And I shouldn't have said it. I said, get a job. And she stepped back and she said, look at me, Phyllis Tickle. I have a beard and boobs. I can't even go and get a job at McDonald's because I can't hold my water for eight hours. And if I go in the men's room, they all curse and hit me. And if I go in the women's room, they all scream and run out. And I'm fired within the first five or six hours. What would you have me do? And I thought, shut your mouth, Tickle. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. That Wednesday night, she was bludgeoned to death on the streets of Memphis uh, by John, who thought he'd gotten one thing and got in there and had another. Uh, I call her story to mind every time. Let us remember that there's so much more than theology here. If Micah 6:8 ever mattered, it matters here. Um, Sam and I, my husband is a physician, have had several friends, two physician friends, as a matter of fact, uh, who have gone through a procedure uh, in order to change to the to the body that was the same sexuality as their psyche. Um, And that's a painful thing, to watch a physician go through it and to know it is that much of an anxiety so that he or she, as the case may be, will do it. And it also ripples over into their... I remember one dear friend of ours, um, we'd socialized for years, and he and his wife had been married 14 years at the time. He finally said, I'm going to transition. I can't do it any longer, and made the transition to being female... And she sat in my dining room and wept and said, I love him, her, it, I love, I'm going to stay, but does that make me a lesbian? Uh, And you realize how it it ripples. So while while it is the last thing sociologically, while I suspect it is the last puck period in all of this, I call to your attention the fact that it it still is a dangerous one. And there are still people who can be hurt so easily, even when we take some sort of theological position, whether it's for or against or whatever. Uh, Those are painful waters that unless you've been there... you don't really appreciate. And now, having said that, I want to also look at the first decade. Uh, You can look at every decade. In the 1960s, cry out. There was nothing weirder than the 1960s. If you want to look at something fun in emergence as it begins to evolve, you look in the 1960s. That place is so crazy, you know. But anyway, I want to look very quickly at the first decade uh, of the last century. We're deep into the peri-emergence at that point. Uh, And it begins in 1900 with Albert Schweitzer. Ever heard of him? Albert Schweitzer, famous musician, right? Absolutely. Uh, And in a day when there wasn't much mass media, he and Enrico Caruso, if that means anything to you, and if it does, you're as old as I am, but he and Enrico Caruso were the only uh, musicians who were really uh, given any press at all. Uh, And sitting on his porch in Alsace-Lorraine, one Saturday afternoon, he says... This is his story of what happened. He said, it suddenly dawned on me, what if Jesus of Nazareth and the Christ of history aren't the same? Followed immediately by the answer, of course they're not. They can't be. There's 2,000 years of us messing with him between what he was and what we now worship. And it frightened him so badly that he gave up the organ, essentially, went to med school and went to Africa. And the rest is a story that we all know. The point is that in the time, pardon me, that he was going uh, to med school, he wrote a book called the, Her- the Search of the Historical Jesus, and the term historical Jesus came into play because it was a popular, if you will, a pop star of a sort who was asking the question. And all of a sudden, we now, for the first time, have in popular parlance that word historical Jesus, and it's going to go... It's going to go by the 1950s. It's going to lead, go to the Good News Bible. Remember that one? By the 1970s, the Cotton Patch Gospel. By the 1990s, Eugene Peterson. God love him. Uh, with, with him and, and we're going, and we're going to get the Jesus Seminar, and we're going to get wonderful people like Jack Spong, my absolute favorite bishop. I adore Jack Spong. I told somebody today. I, every time I see him, I say. Every time he calls me, he says hello, gorgeous, and you know we're off and running. So he's okay, uh, but. <laughs> But, but Jack Spong is wonderful and he's just wrong as rainwater, which I'm pleased to tell him all the time, um, because he's still working in a modernist thing, but it led to it led to Qumran uh, and Nagamati to the discovery of texts that weren't even there at the time we established the canon. What I am saying to you is if you are going to argue if you're going to Protestant inerrancy, be sure you know what you're arguing from and about, because not all of the The canon we have now was basically established by Constantine. It was an emperor who decided which of the the 27 books we'd have. He had help, and there had been conferences. But it basically was a political decision. And it was based on the the available uh, manuscripts. And there have been many manuscripts since that have been unearthed that appear to be genuine. One of the things emergent Christians are calling for is a reconsideration of the canon. You need to hear them. You need to hear them carefully because these are thoughtful people. And before you condemn them, you need to remember that 2,000 years ago, when we went through the great transition or the great transformation, whatever you want to call it, Judaism went through it with us, right? I mean, they, they also went through it. And within 100 years, they are beginning to build a what? The Mishnah, which is the same thing that's happening now in Christianity. Let's see what was not available in the 4th century. Let's see what got lost. Let's see if they th- And asking the other question, and and Brother Stan uh, Stan did it today, asking the other question is, what what did John Chrysostom have to say? What did Clement of Alexander have to say? What did Ignatius of Antioch? These men, they, they studied with John the Apostle. They were one generation removed from Jesus Christ. Why the hell aren't we reading them? It's a very good question, inelegantly asked but very good question, you know? And, and, and when you begin to ask it, when you begin to ask it, then you begin to understand that Scripture has a oomph, a gravitas, a wonder to it for people who are willing to ask those questions. But at the same time, Protestant inerrancy has just received another major blow. And so it comes down for each of you to decide where you're going to be on that, what you're going to do with it. But you are going to have to decide Then the next thing that happened, and I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump to 1905. 1905 is the year that a smart young Jew, I usually say a smart-ass young Jew, but I won't say it here, um, named Albert Einstein, you know, wrote four papers, and they were going to change the world. They were going to change the world, absolutely. The first one was on light, in which he said, do you know that light moves in bundles and also in waves according to where we need for it to go or where it wants to go. And those bundles, which we've not paid much attention to before, I think that they are quanta. And each of them is a quantum. Welcome to the world of quantum physics. Just that simple. It was going to completely redo our understanding of the world. The next thing he did was Brownian, all within one year, Brownian motion. Now, Brownian Motion had been around for about 50 years, thus the name. Uh, it had been around since creation, but the, you know. Uh, and nobody, Brown, who fooled with it, couldn't figure out why it happened. And so he just named it and walked away from it. Einstein said, I'll tell you what it is. And I used to play with Brownie and motion In the days before TV games and all this kind of thumb stuff, uh, kids growing up, you know, did outdoor things. What a concept. Um, and I used to, I used to take a, my, my mother's wash bucket is what I took and put it out on the driveway, which was fairly stable, and poured water in it. And, let. you know, when you do that, the water gets very, eventually gets quiet, right? You know, at it, first it's like this, and then it gets quiet. And then you take something, I always took pollen, but you take something dead and very light and you drop it in the middle of the still water and it ripples for a minute, right? And then it too gets still, right? And then if you sit long enough, what happens? Remember this? You ever do it? It begins to move, doesn't it? And it begins to move until it gets over here and up against the wall of whatever it is the vessel is. And nobody could understand why that spontaneous birthing out of motion. And Einstein said, I'll tell you why. It's because you're asking the wrong question. You're asking why a dead thing begins to move. I'm here to tell you there is nothing in all of creation that's dead. Nothing. And what you're calling dead is made of atoms. And they have nuclei and they have electrons and they have neutrons and they have protons. He didn't say quarks yet. We weren't there yet. But he said they're alive. Everything in creation is alive. And if you'll give me a little while, I'll bust it open for you and show them to you. Welcome to Hiroshima. Welcome to our idea, our realization. We can totally, we can totally destroy creation. One of the papers. The next one was special relativity. Relativity. It was the one Einstein went to his grave hating. He He never could forgive himself for this one. He wrote in 1915 general relativity to try to undo it. And eventually Heisenberg in 1927 is going to write the uncertainty principle. And all of 20th century physics is suddenly born right here, right here. Because he said at the quantum level, I can tell you where a thing is, but not how fast it's going. Or I can tell you how fast it's going, but not where it is. Because everything is relative to a receiving or a perceiver. Everything is relative. And he never could forgive himself for it. It's going to be the birthing ground of all, of almost all, of 20th century philosophy. From Tony Camputo all the way up to uh, to, uh, all all of them. All of them uh, are going to come out of this uncertainty principle. How strange it is. How strange it is. And then the last one was the most famous formula of all. You know it, you learned it in grade school. What is energy? Energy is mass times the speed of light squared, right? Of course it is. Nobody had known what energy was. The Reformation gave us Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics assumed, and Newton assumed, that we could reduce all of creation to stuff. And if you just slice and dice it small enough and often enough, you will ultimately get down to the mass. You will ultimately understand creation. It will. That that will happen. That will happen. Well, that was fine until the 18th century and the early 19th century when we began to discover that there was such a thing as steam and you could run an engine with it. And that stuff is energy. And what is energy? Energy. Nobody knew what energy was, but everybody began to realize with Einstein, indeed, creation is not just something you can reduce to stuff. It is also energy, and the two together, they thought, was all of creation. All of creation is made of energy and stuff put together. And so he said, well, stuff is mass times the square, you know, and it's the only mistake probably he ever made, if he made it. I'm not sure he made it. In assuming that when he put energy and mass together, he had unzipped what creation was about. We now know that in 1930s, there was a man, you know, named Alan Turin. Ever hear of him? Alan Turin, who played with a wonderful machine and who began to use electricity and began to understand that everything we know can be reduced somehow to symbols. He was working off of the telegraph and what we knew about telegraphy. And he was crazy as everything, and he eventually committed suicide because we weren't very kind to him. But he was followed by a man named Claude Shannon, who at MIT in 1947 wrote a paper called The Mathematical Computation of Information, in which he showed that everything in the world, everything could be ultimately defined and conveyed by digits, ones and zeros moving from this direction instead of that direction, and negative and positive. What he has birthed is the computer. In 1953, you get a man at MIT, Norman Viner. um, I want to call him Wiener because he wasn't a very nice guy, but his name was really Viner, uh, who developed what he called information theory. And we now know... And and if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go get at least a basic book like The Information uh, or something like that, uh, which is a very good book. Um, We now know that the universe is composed of matter, absolutely. It is also composed of energy, and it is composed of information. And for the first time ever, I think, so far as I know, that's a broad statement. The old academic in me gets really nervous when we talk that way. But so far as we can tell, for the first time ever, philosophers and theologians and scientists are actually now sitting down and beginning to talk to each other. Beginning to talk to each other because their disciplines seem to have come together within the science of our time. And major schools like Claremont and Lincoln University are giving over huge, and MIT is on huge areas of academic study trying to figure out what this is about. But what it gets down to is is this, mass, energy, and information. And it gets down to the philosophers and the scientists turning to the theologians and saying, you guys had it right all along. We didn't understand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. That's the kind of Christianity we're walking into. That's the age which we have to work toward. Every time we go through one of these things, the ecclesiology changes and the theology changes. To some extent, the spirituality changes. This time, there's a huge change called pneumatology. The understanding now that there is something out there. Call it Hologos, call it what you will that we've not been able to define yet, but is there and we can now engage. And because right after Einstein, you go to 1906 in that thing called Azusa Street. Ever hear of Azusa Street? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Azusa Street. Where for the first time ever, since Pentecost itself, men and women of all classes and races, and it, it didn't matter, whatever, gathered in a little old converted stable, and listened night after night after night as William Seymour, African-American, mama born in slavery, he was born free, began to preach that there is something that happened at Pentecost that is ready to happen again. Yes, there had been other times. Yes, there had been mystics. I never said that the Holy Spirit hadn't been there. But what I did say, every night corporately reproducibly, repeatedly, over and over, predictably, the Holy Spirit came among those people, and He came in tongues of fire, He came in healing, and He came in glossolalia and xenolalia, and the Spirit was there. And they stayed there for two years before they finally spread out all over. And and yes, absolutely, the, the Wesleyan movement had been there, but it hadn't been like this. This was contained, this was repeatable, this was there. And if you don't and, and you can do you can do what you want to with it. You can, and I, I will be respectful of that. You can say all of that healing stuff, that's just psychological. I, I understand psychological suggestion. You know, I, 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 I did, I, I'm married to a doctor. I've, I've been cured of it at least 2,000 times. I give him the symptoms, and he says, it's not in the book, sweetheart, so suck it up. And I'm healed, you know. I mean, <laughs> Nothing like that to, to heal. But this, look at what the LA Times hardcore repo- reporters are writing about what's happening. In, but in Azusa Street, they stayed there for two years, and then they began to spread. And now there are more Pentecostals in the world than there are citizens in the United States of America. There are, if you put Pentecostals and Charismatics together, you would have the fourth largest religion in the world. One of the things about emergence Christianity and about our times is that Western or Euro-Caucasian, whatever you want to call it, Christianity is now only about 20% of global Christianity. And the other 80% is deeply involved in what happened at Azusa Street. And we too are going to have to learn what is it, what do you think it is? What is it? If God indeed has come among us this way, then should we not indeed be engaging? And so and so on. Then I will will finish. And so you begin to get people, scientists mostly, who, starting with Charles Darwin, begin to say, you know... Is it not indeed possible? And this is called progressive revelation. And some of you grew up being told this is a heresy. It may be a heresy. I never do this without complete awareness that the only unforgivable sin is talking about the Holy Spirit. And I would give anything to not be doing this. But anyway, because I can smell flesh burning. But, but, you know, and it's mine. It smells an awful lot like mine. What, what thinkers, serious thinkers, are now suggesting to us is that it's entirely possible, it seems entirely possible. Uh, And Joachim, or Joachim, if you want to call it a Fjorni, was the first of the mystics to actually um, articulate this in the 12th century. And when he was dealing with it, he said, you know, there are uh, going to be 7,000 years to human dispensation, to the human dispensation. And the first 2,000 years are going to be the 2,000 years of God the Father. That is, we're going to move from El, which was an abstract word for God, El, to Yahweh. And we because our people, because we human beings, our, our forebears, in those years, thousands of years ago, in those thousands of years ago, had, had a need for a patriarchal figure. They desperately needed the protection of a father. They needed somebody authoritative. They needed a God they could approach in that way and understand him as ruler and principal. And so the mystic said, and that will go from the Garden of Eden right up to the cross. And at the cross, our forebears are going to find that they need a God who can show them what it is to be a human who worships God. What what does God look like when he engages in humanity? And so we have 2,000 years of God the Son. And then the mystic said, we will have 2,000 years of God the Holy Spirit in which we will complete the, the trinity, in which we as a people of God and with our forebears will have moved. It's called evolutionary spirituality. If the word bothers you, go look it up, go Google it, or evolutionary Christianity. We are now moving into a new age, into a new pneumatology, into a time when we would engage the Holy Spirit in ways that it has never happened before. Not and, and what we're getting is a complete sense of the trinity Now we have a complete trinity. And now we're approaching the end, as they all say, as we get there. And so uh, it is that um, spirituality has to change. Uh, That is to say, some of the spirituality you and I grew up on, or certainly you grew up on, doesn't fit people who have been born in the last 40 years. The only way I know to show that or to make it clear is this way. For thousands of years ago, at least 3,500 years ago, um, our forebears in in the faith would say, you know, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord my God who made heaven and earth. And that's wonderful, isn't it? That's spiritual engagement with deity. And it is passionate and it is the language of poetry and it's experiential. You can go to the hills and you can look up and you can see them and you can think, oh, yes, yes. Young people today, 40 and under say, I will lift up mine eyes through the Hubble and oh, my God. It's because of what Einstein began to open for them. And the spirituality we have and the language we have doesn't fit what the Hubble is showing us. It doesn't show us the wonder of the possibility that we're making a major lurch forward. Men as sober as Harvey Cox at Harvard are saying now that what we're going through in the great emergence is not like the great reformation or the great schism or the great decline and fall, so much as it's like the great transformation, that that one changed everything and this one is going to change everything. And the others were just interesting little 500-year burps on the road. And what we're doing, what we're doing is defining rheumatology as well as theology, as well as ecclesiology. And that's what we're building. And if we ever forget that Oh, my God. It's the spirituality of drama and of community. It has to be shared. It can't be individually experienced. And so that's what we're doing. And now I thank you for letting me say the things I felt needed to be said. And now we really will do the Q&A if anybody's interested at this point. (laughs) How you want to do it, Stan?
1: Oh, let's just grab some microphones and see who's froggy enough and brave enough to start with the first question. Okay. Are you going to sit down for this? Or are you just going to keep roaming around? No,
2: I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm happier roaming.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm going I'm to sit here besides you and help field the questions. Okay. So, man, I have a lot of questions, but I'm not going to be um, <laughs> selfish. Let's get to as many questions as we possibly can. Um, who wants to start? Clark. There's something you need to understand about these folks. They're always hesitant to go first. So let the stupid guy speak first.
2: I, I, what? I, I, didn't, I didn't understand.
1: He said the stupid guy's about to speak oh, first. Oh, so.
2: That I doubt.
1: That I doubt. A lot of people got that.
2: Uh, what do you foresee is the, going to be the authority of the outcome of this emergency? Yeah, what is going to be the authority? Uh, every, every time we go through one of the 500 year things, the central question is always the same where now is the authority? Then there are always two or sometimes three concomitant questions. We got lucky in the emergence, we've got three concomitant questions. We not only have the authority question, but we have have to develop sometime in the next 90 years, a theology of religion, which is to say, um, some sort of theology that will allow us as practicing Christians to live in a polity with uh, members who are practicing another faith that is antithetical to ours. Now, what that amounts to, of course, is we're talking about Islam, right? Uh, but and in this country, it's not a problem yet. In France and in England, it's a huge problem, where the proportions now are becoming increasingly Islamic. Uh, and where, where is, for especially evangelicals, I, I have an old college roommate, who just really thinks she should go convert the garbage man every time the garbage is picked up, which just makes me want to gag, but that's not the point. You can't do that now because you're going to get sued and your garbage isn't going to get picked up. You violate, you know, you, you, you. The, the, the second thing is we, we don't know what a human being is. Uh, and this is the first generation that has not known. We honestly don't know what a human being is. Uh, we're all in the business of saving souls and you can't tell me what one is. Uh, we, we lost, and there's a whole lecture I can give on the fact that we don't know what one is uh, at all. And we don't know what the atonement doctrine is. The churches had six or seven, according to how you dice it, six or seven doctrines of the atonement. And the one you and I probably grew up under was Ansel of Canterbury, uh, written in 1097, cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. Uh, but it was a cop-out to take care of all the men who were going over to the Crusades. So, and, and an emergence will look at you and say, they don't know the answer either, but And I've had them say it many a time. Let's get this straight. You want me to believe in an omnipotent and omniscient God who doesn't know any other way to get around the problem but kill his only kid? Push farther, the, answer, the question will be, now let's get this straight. You want me to be God, to take on God the Father and he has one kid and kills him? It's not a daddy I need. You see what they're saying? And there are other doctrines. Stan can do a whole lecture on this. There, there are other doctrines of the atonement but those three are going to have to be solved along with the authority question. Um, I think the nearest answer I've gotten to the authority question came from a, a female uh, theologian, uh, emergence theologian of some national province, as a matter of fact, who said when it's over, it's going to look a lot like Anglicans' th- answer. Um, Episcopals and Anglicans uh, use hooker stool, three legged stool, three things that, you know, uh, and merchants call it hooker stamp stool, all in one word, hooker stamp stool. And she says it's going to look like, a whole lot like hooker stamp stool. Uh, it's going to have to be community because when you're dealing with the Holy Spirit, and they're very clear about this, when you're dealing with the Holy Spirit, you better have two or three prayer partners there with you. And if it takes all night, so be it. Discerning to be sure you're hearing correctly what the Spirit is saying. So it has to have community. It has to have Scripture. And then what's it going to be? The Trinity, just the Holy Spirit, uh, who knows? And she says, we honestly don't know which one it's going to be, whether it's going to be the Trinity in completion or whether it's going to be just the Spirit. But uh, they're working on it. Uh, and their theology has to, you know, it's not enough to drop a stool. Your your, your evolving theology has to mesh with what that stool is. Uh, And definitely the communal element, there's no question about it, and the scriptural element, she's absolutely right. Uh, And I don't know pneumatologically what's going to happen on the other, but we're going to have to solve it. I think when I'm talking to emergence, we can't solve the authority question until we know what a human being is. And we really don't know. We, we were fine, you know this, until the, until the drug age came along. And thanks to Timothy Leary, we now don't know. Uh, and, and we discovered that if I give you the same amount of the same drug at the same time every day, and you've eaten the same thing and slept the same time and drunk the same amount of stuff, I can change you predictably and reproducibly over and over again, predictably from person A to person B, and you're not schizophrenic. Which then leads to the question, so which one are you, A or B? Which then leads to the question, are you in reality only what the chemicals washing over your neurons are? or Are you something else? And it's a serious question. It sounds so silly, doesn't it? It sounds like a fourth grade puzzle. It's not. It's not. Uh, And where it impacts is now as we're beginning to build robots uh, and transhumanism and move into transhumanism, which is a huge field. That's a whole lecture. uh, Transhumanism. When we have to decide what's the essence of the human being and what is a soul. Uh, And I think we can't do the authority question until we get that one. It seems to me we can't. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm checking out, you know. As they say, I'm getting off the bus soon, baby. And I'm not going to worry about it, but yeah.
1: You're getting on the bus soon?
2: Getting off the bus, bus. uh, yeah. Otherwise known as getting the hell out of Dodge City. Mm, Yeah.
1: Um, next, anybody else have a question?
0: In, in your Great Emergence, you talk about
1: the various transitions and how you have to retool a lot. Do you feel that
0: there is some fundamental core of doctrine and practice that just gets re-embodied? Or is, there, is it a very, very fundamental level Christianity completely re from generation to generation?
2: This gets to the heresy of progressive revelation. And, and I go there with, with that caveat. I, I, am with, I am with people like McIntosh and, and Elia Delio and, and Cynthia Brick. I think if we look honestly at history, they're right. We are, the species is evolving. Uh, we're invo- evolving to a, a different understanding. And as we do, God presents himself to us in ways we can understand as we get closer. I think that's what's happening. I'm also aware that that's heresy. Uh, in, in many ways. Um, I just can't get away from the fact that I think these thinkers are right. Uh, Pierre, uh, uh, do you do Desjardins mm-hmm. here? Uh, he's the first to really begin to uh, articulate this in uh, the first and middle part of the last century, and most of the work has begun since him, but there are strong arguments for the belief that, uh, indeed, we're making a lurch forward um, in the same way, Melissa's heard me do this. In in the same way, the most poignant story for me in the whole New Testament, right, uh, is Philip. You know, good Jew that he was. Philip, God love him. You know, he was the first to say, "Look, I found I found the Son of God. I found Messiah. Come see." You know, he's full of himself, right? And three years later, they're going to Jerusalem, and, and they're he's telling them. This is going to be it. This is going to be the end. And you're going to have to carry on without me. And Philip has this moment of panic when he says, I'm a good Jew. I believe in God. And you're claiming, what? What does this mean? Tell. And he turns to Jesus and says in his agony, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. Just let me see that you really are God. And that heartbreaking answer, Jesus turns to him and says, Philip, Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet have you not known me? For I am in the Father, and the Father in me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For I and the Father are one. And that was a major, I think, lurch forward, in the same way that people are talking about, people like Desjardins are talking about a lurch forward now in moving now we're being asked to see the spirit I think but I do it with a lot of caveats
1: my my reflection on that is to talk about progressive revelation as an innovative new thing for me, misses the point because
2: I think it, exactly.
1: church history indicates that it, we've always been doing progressive revelation. Yeah. We may not want to call but it But we didn't that. call it a heresy.
2: We invented this term to cover the heresy part of it. And, <clears throat> well, but we've been doing it. We've been we've doing it. We've never not absolutely. been doing
1: it. Even the first hundred years of church history that we have, that we call the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those right. 27 books have a church absolutely not changing a biblical text, but unfolding, unfolding what has always been there as a time-release right. capsule. That's right. So it's, it's really not a discarding of the text no. or a mistreatment of the text. It's allowing the text. Jesus opened again the Scripture and said, actually, a suffering Messiah and a resurrection was in the book all along. We don't need a new book for that. So progressive revelation is
2: not a new innovation. Right. Here, your pastor, he just you know, he just did, gave me a, a, a you know, pay-up salvo. Uh he doesn't know he's Roman Catholic, but <laughs> just <laughs> what did I do only the Roman Catholic smile. a te oh, you just said, "Father, forgive me, and you do Teo salvo. Okay. i forgive you uh, but but the terminology is and you're absolutely right, you're absolutely right. it's just that be aware that this is this is like you know any any time you touch the spirit uh an atonement is scary mm-hmm. to talk about absolutely scary others. Oh, I I love the way she waves at me first. Go ahead, hit me.
3: Uh, I'm waving at Pastor Stan. Oh, hi. Hi. Um, So I feel like, um, forgive me, I'm not a biblical scholar, but in the ages that you've been talking about, there's a distinct way that the churches have looked before Jesus, there was, like, the temple, and everybody went to the temple, and there was a rigid law that they followed, and then after Jesus, uh, we had, like, you know, progressed towards the Roman Catholic, one central body church type deal where we're all the same kind of look Christians, and then we moved to... Forgive me, I can't remember the number of denominations yeah, that no, we've been talking I about. It's, I
2: think it's, th- it's, it's 37,000. Yeah,
3: 37,000 different. And I
2: think 49.
1: 39,600. 39,
3: 39,600 different denominations of Christianity. And now, um, Pastor Stan has talked a little bit about, um, in Georgian and in Wednesday night, about maybe... They might be kind of heading towards a reunification. What do you think, in your opinion, in your humble opinion, what um, do you I think? I have got one. <laughs> <laughs> Never had a humble opinion in my life. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think this third age um, of the church, the age of the spirit, what is this going to look like? You're
2: the Pentecostal, not me. I'm an Anglican. We only talk about God. We get nervous with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit just drives us crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You you go. Uh, They hear me all the time. Inevitably, it's going to winnow out. Uh, You know, 39,000 different things is is absurd, Uh, and it's going to winnow out. Uh, There's no way that it can't. Are we going to come to emerging of those distinct doctors. Are we, for instance, going to come to a merging of Calvinism with Wesleyanism? Uh, wouldn't that be an interesting thing if that could happen? Yeah. And, and, and it's, not, it's not likely to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I know, for instance, in Wales, uh, I, I know that there can be administrative uh, coming together. In Wales, I'm told that the five recognized Protestant churches uh, now have one common headquarters. Uh, and share one secretarial staff nationally. Uh, they've, they've come to that. As the numbers decrease for the various denominations, we will find that kind of merging, which is a mechanical one. It's not a spiritual or, or religious merging or theological one. I think, uh, in, in my case, uh, an Episcopalian, it took us six years, but there's a thing now called call to common mission. Uh, and it did. It took us six years to agree that a Lutheran, an, uh, you know, an unwashed Lutheran priest could get up there and touch our holy elements and give them to us, and uh, we find it, and then it took the Lutherans a while to decide that some man smelling of perfume could get around them too it couldn 't possibly be good for their ladies and so we worked at it for six years. now we share congregations, we share theological education, we share ordination. There are six other divisions of American Protestantism that are trying now to join that call to common mission. Uh, So, But that's not the major divides as, for instance, Calvinism would be with Wesleyanism. That's a huge divide. Uh, One of the things we haven't talked about is Neo-Calvinism and Neo-Orthodoxy, which are uh, uh, Tim Keller, if that name means anything to you, is uh, one of the more prominent evidences of of Neo-Calvinism, which is fascinating to me to watch. Uh, And and they're wonderful people. Uh, And they're revamping Calvinism. Uh, in a way that goes beyond... Yeah, you're a Presbyterian, you know what I'm talking about when I say Tim Keller. Uh, so, I don't know. I think inevitably, we can't have 40,000 different divisions running around. It makes no sense. But Protestantism came up, one of the things the Reformation was was individualism. And the Protestantism has the fatal flaw of institutionalism, capitalism, you know, and, and individualism. And some of them will choose to die upon their swords rather than join... I suspect, but we can't. We can't support that kind of thing. It's silly. It's silly. Stan
0: said, "Is this working?" Okay. And Stan said, "Oh no, <laughs> um, I'm not a member here, so nothing I say can be held against Pastor Mitchell."
2: Thank you,
1: uh,
0: <laughs> Phyllis.
2: <laughs> He's relieved. He said, "Thank you,
0: <laughs> Phyllis." It sounds to me like what you know, to boil it all down is that we need to throw out the rules, and I'm talking about the nitpicking rules that you summarized this morning, uh, the social rules that have held us back for centuries and just worship God. Is that, does that
2: I don't think you can throw out the rules and I really would hate to think that I left that impression. Uh, some of the rules aren't going to throw away. Uh, The man-made ones need to go. And the trick is to discover which were man-made and which weren't. Uh, And look at the man-made ones and see if they don't need to go. Uh, Emergence itself, this group right here, uh, is, is a blending together of many faiths, right? We have many, many denominations here. Some Romans, I know, because you'd spoken to me beforehand, as well as many Protestants. Emergence is, in many ways, bringing that hodgepodge together. Uh, and when you bring them together, a lot of the rules that are inapplicable, uh, in like inapplicable, I'll say it in a minute, begin to show up because you will find that that little particular rule or understanding appertains only to me as a a Southern Baptist or Seventh-day Adventist. And I'm in a group of 200 people where we're all doing God's work and there are only two others who are Seventh-day Adventists. And so therefore, I begin to look at whether or not that little particular quirk is maybe idiosyncratic as opposed to biblical. Does that make sense? So that there's a certain um, wearing down, if you will, or wearing away, of, of some of the particularities. Let me say that one of the, there are nine or ten characteristics of emergence Christians. Well, there are probably 15, as a matter of fact. That, but one of the most dominant ones is that they're deeply liturgical. And Jack Spong, who truly is great, I, I love Jack to death, uh, but he years ago, he years ago said, if you want to understand what's happening with emergence, you need to understand that basically they're becoming catacomb Christians. Which was his way of saying that the need to go back before Constantine, we're post-Constantinian, a different lecture entirely, but to go back before Constantine and see what the church was in those first 300 years and value what was there. And what you get there is the tradit you get the liturgy. You get the Didache. Uh, emergence, believe it or not, I don't know how many copies of the Didache uh, have been public. Does that make any sense? The, the, the Didache is the first prayer book uh, dating from about 110 of the Common Era. Uh, they're using it, you know? Uh, so the, the liturgy matters, the smells and bells matter because they convey a truth that doesn't have to be articulated so you can argue whether it's true or not, which is where you were going with your question. Do you know what I'm saying? And they're deeply aesthetic, deeply aesthetic because, again, you don't have to articulate it. When we get in trouble is when we articulate it, and that's a Protestant need to articulate it, to nail it down. And if you can do it, there's a great uh, incorporation now in emergence uh, worship of of icons uh, and and real interest in orthodoxy because, again, it does it with picture and it does it with tradition and it does it with uh, experiential odor and all of that. And the more you can avoid articulating and the more you can suggest and convey uh, in an inarticulate way, the happier they are because of exactly what you just said.
0: Over here, anybody? This side's dominating right now. Good stand. We're, we're coming back over here. Um Phyllis, this whole idea of coming into the new I can't age. Hear you. Can't hear you. Hold it way up. This there. this new Um, Age that we're coming into of the spirit the next 2,000 years. That's the first I've ever heard of this, but it sounds really interesting. Yeah, and um, It kind of hits on the atonement for me does because um, Supposedly we live in the age of grace. We are no longer under the law but To me it seems as though we are just under a different form of the law the way most people view the cross that We don't have to make sacrifices uh, of lambs. Yeah. In fact, Christ was the Lamb of God. He was the ultimate sacrifice. But nonetheless, it was a sacrifice that was required for what? To satisfy the law. And so really, it's almost as though we have the law of Christ. The point being, we are still under that contract, that, that legal contract or that relationship with God, him, the judge, were those, uh, the sinners who obtained grace through Christ. Well, do you think, here's my question, it still seems like we're in the age of the law. That's the way it feels like, and yet Christ and the crucifixion, to me, has so many more meanings, and I can relate to it on different levels. I really don't relate to God on that sacrificial level where I f- should feel guilty almost for my mere existence, and that without knowing about the cross, oh, gee, I'm a, a condemned person. You know, it seems like if we're heading to this age of spirituality, um, you know, that uh, the verse, Stan, I don't remember where it is, and you might remember this, but we live by the Spirit, not by the law. Yeah. Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. It seems like if we're heading into this age of the Spirit, That's right. That's right. that maybe this could be the, the break breaking point, where yes. we go from really living under the law, even though we say we're in the age of grace, to truly going to a more Spirit-based relationship with God. And am I off base
2: on this? No, sir, you're like 100% on track. Now, I'll leave you to your pastor who may want to say something, uh, especially about how much of of the law uh, appertained after the crucifixion. But absolutely, what you just said, any good emergence could have said, would have said, you just outlined what we mean by the age, what they mean when they say we're moving to a a part of what you said. uh, Fits what we're talking about in the age of the spirit. We're going now to engage the spirit. Uh, in the same way and with the same familiarity and the same frequency that we've engaged Jesus. Every little child praying to Jesus every night uh, before he or she goes to bed. That kind of familiarity with the Holy Spirit, which is a scary, scary thing. Uh, you want to answer it to his theology?
1: Um, we we talk about that aplenty around okay. here. I, I think one of the things that gets uncomfortable for folk, is not only have we categorized the work of Christ as the new covenant, the more important term that we've ascribed to that is the final covenant. And are are you suggesting, this is strong language, are you suggesting something as dramatically shifting, uh, as dramatically cataclysmically different as we have between Malachi and Matthew? Yes. You're suggesting that. So you're talking like...
2: I, Old, speaking for new, my, and a third one? Uh, uh, speaking uh, for emergence, I think they would answer, yes, that's what we're a, talking a about. A third? A third, yes. The completion of the That is trip, as
1: distinct a, from the second as the second is, is from... Is from the
2: first. That's what they're talking about.
1: Who invited this lady?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. I just said that's what they're talking about, and he beautifully no, articulated no, no, it.
1: But you have, honestly, joking aside that question comes up of course it does. for a lot of people. I don't know that we're even doing what we call the first and the second we're or the not. first and the last or however we... I don't know that we're doing them even, even employing biblical language consistent with what they were. I don't know. That's like when, when Pentecostals said a second work of grace. That's right. Wesleyan, second yeah. work of grace. Um, how about second and third and fourth and 13,000th yeah. and 400th? <laughs> I, I don't know that we need to limit that categorically, the the move of God. why
2: would you have a trinity and not have three distinct engagements? Uh, Let me be devil's advocate.
1: But that gets into sequential modalism, like God did the Father thing, then God did the Son thing, then God did the… it doesn't. What about simultaneously God is doing those things?
2: That's right. And that's not… I'm not arguing with her. I'm just having
1: a sidebar here. (laughs)
2: And and he is so wrong, let me tell you, he has no idea how wrong he is.
1: It's not modalism. That's turn, not what they're turn talking Turn your microphone off a minute. And I'll oh, turn mine off. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, okay. It's not modalism. It's not you, modalism. You, it's not...
2: You, it's, coexistent it's, trinity? Co- coexistent trinity without part in one whole and in three pieces. Cooperative all the time? We didn't have
1: a season when Christ... It was the church's perspective on God, or was God just doing the Christological thing, and now you're saying God's doing the pneumatological thing? Is that at the best of God, or that is it...
2: modalism. By any way yeah. you go at it, that's modalism. Yeah, yeah. that's not what you're that's saying. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, back that's to you That's not what I'm saying. No, okay. You pass. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Prep. <laughs> okay,
1: just wanted to check that out. Okay. Do y'all have any idea what we were just talking about? <laughs> I am so sorry. Okay, Next.
3: Hi, Phyllis. Hi. Um, I grew up Pentecostal, and um, I think the adult in me, a lot of this kind of rocks my world background, you know, um, and I think that the adult in me can kind of handle riding the wave of that, and this body has been wonderful um, for us in kind of just thinking and and opening our minds, but um, I have small children, and I always go back to them as I'm helping them form their faith. Um, what does that look like? And as we are awaiting to see a lot of how this kind of forms, how do we help them kind of grow? And um, I think the Pentecostal girl in me knows that the answer is the Spirit, but I'd love to just hear kind of some of your thoughts about how this looks for family faith.
2: I think, uh, in all seriousness, I think we're just at the beginning of this and I don't know the answer to that, and I think even if I had an answer, I'd be hesitant to use it publicly. I just honestly don't have it, okay? I don't think we know. I think we, there's no question that Azusa Street marks the beginning of something. Uh, there were precursors, of course there were precursors. There, you know, The Assemblies of God and, and Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee have the reconstruction of a little two-room uh, wooden shed uh, church. Uh, on, the, on the East Tennessee, Western North Carolina border, where the Spirit came uh, visibly and repeatedly for two weeks and, and then left. There was an experience in Sweden before Azusa Street. Uh, the Malkavians uh, in Russian Orthodox uh, thought they were engaging the Spirit, and they finally went to schism, and they don't exist anymore, but the last half of the 19th century. But you can see from the Wesleyan movement on, you can hear the rumblings, but it's not till you get to Azusa Street. When you have to say, "Here it is, here is the the third part of the Trinity, familiarly if that were I never can say that word, on a familiar basis, dealing with us, and what does that mean, and is that not the scariest thing you can imagine? Is that God the Spirit chooses to come among us in this in this way um, and so I think it's fair to say that how you rear your children in that I don't know i think it's one of the things we don't have any idea we're going to have to work but we've got some remarkable thinkers and devout christians roman as well as protestant who are prayerfully working their way to to what does this mean down here where we live what does this mean it's one thing when harvey cox an academic does it or martin marty does it but it's quite another when you get ready to rear children What, what are you going to tell them what is your what is your understanding of the spirit Do you engage the spirit in the same way you engage the father or the son? Do you worship the spirit in the same way? Do you worship the spirit independent of the father and the son? Do you? And I don't know the answers. It's a good question. It's where the rubber hits the road is when you start saying, I'm raising children. This community and communities like it are the best place to work the question out. They, they truly are. That's one. Of, I'm not an emergence Christian. I'm probably a hyphenated, which is to say, I've fooled with it long enough so that I'm probably an Anglo emergent. I don't want to When I'm dead and buried, I want a man in the skirt spelling of incense to say the last words. Okay, nothing's going to get me away from that. But there's much of emergence that also appeals to me, um, and, but not not an emergent at all. But this right here, I think, is going to be their great gift uh, to Christianity, and I think it's going to take a while. Uh, prayer for a while. But it's definitely going on, there's no question.
3: Hi there, my name's Sarah, and I'm a visitor. Um, I had a question about, as we're making this trajectory move toward um, pneumatology, I'm wondering, is there space in this movement to worship God the Spirit using female language, feminine language, um that's this. a good
2: question uh, Cynthia Barjo uh, has probably written did you hear her is there the employment of feminine language Cynthia Barjo has probably written the um, yeah. great classic statement I guess you would call it uh, on that very thing which says that which is, she takes the position that the attempt to make a she out of the spirit uh, is is ridiculous in, in every way and undermines the whole idea of the spirit, that the spirit is not sexed in any way, Uh, and uh, to call it he, or to call it it, it's the spirit, just keep using the noun if you have to, but to assume that we are completing the trinity in order to get gender straight is really, she says, a kind of heresy of a sort, it really is modalism in its its best way, and so it's not an attempt to to introduce the feminine uh, at all. God is not feminine or masculine in, in either way. I understand also where your question is coming from. Uh, I understand that many women uh, now, and in our days of increasing gender equality, feel considerable pain uh, that it's God, he, all the time, and our Father, uh, who, and all of that. Uh, but that's not the way to fix it. The Holy Spirit's not the way to fix it, to gender the Holy Spirit is is not going to be the way. I just call you to uh, attention uh, to to you. Uh, Cynthia Borjolt. Uh, do you have a copy? I, I have I one at home. Okay, I do. It's it's a fine essay. What six eight pages, and it's not it's not a big deal, uh, but it probably is the ultimate statement on that question.
1: She also says the only thing more aggravating than calling God He is. Changing that over and calling God she. Yes, which
2: is equally annoying. Um,
1: You know, any simile and metaphor, which when you're talking about God in anthropomorphic terms, it's simile metaphor. And to use a simile, you're saying God is like this. As soon as you say God is like this, you're also saying God is not like this. God is like this, but God is not like this. And as as long as you recognize that when you're saying he or she, God is like. Well, Scripture certainly indicates that God is like a mother. God is like a nurturing mother. But God is not like a nurturing mother. God is like a man, like a male, a father who loves. God is not like that. So uh, simile is limited, and we speak through similes that are germane to our culture. The problem is we have a text that is so important to us from a culture 2,000 years ago And how do we make that gender inclusive, and is that really the fix, or just recognizing the limitation of simile?
2: And he just used the word anthropomorphic, and I had strenuously avoided it. I hope you noticed that. Okay, sorry. No, 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 I'm not, (laughs) now that you opened the door. One of the things that emergence is is arguing is their critics call it demythologizing and say what you're trying to do is demythologize, And they object strenuously because that's a loaded term. What they are saying, you look through the Hubble, if nothing else, that can't be taken anthropomorphically, that for all of the years of Judeo-Christian history, we have tried to envision God in terms of our own anatomy. And the Spirit will not be subjected to that at all. And for the first time, we're going to have to imagine, I will look through the Hubble and, oh my God, it's not anthropomorphic. Now, I don't know whether you can go there, and that's not a comfortable place for many Christians who really do uh, wish the Father... I like having the Father. Uh, I'm 80, and you know I hope he's still there when I get there. Um, but uh, I also understand what younger Christians are saying, is that you've had four or 5,000 years of anthropomorphic envisioning of the Godhead. And now, uh, since Einstein with the move into greater and greater science and greater and greater understanding of what's happening uh, and what, what the universe is uh, and what God is, we can't anthropomorphize anymore. And I don't think that's demythologizing. I hate no. that word. I think it's an unfair word. I think it's a judgmental word. It's a misunderstanding of myth, I think. Yeah, I think so too. But um, if you can think of God in non-anthropomorphic terms.
1: Uh, he looks like Burl Lives. Oh, Okay. You.
2: I'd say one more. What do you think? One more question? Two more? What? One, one more? Are you kidding? Are you tired? No. I mean, aren't they? <laughs> no. 6.15? Oh. Oh. Are y'all tired? I would think right. they might be ready to go right. home. Tobin.
0: You mentioned in the first service that uh, 9-11 is considered or will be considered the seminal event
1: of yeah. this age. In the
2: same way that October 31st. It was just pulled up out of a hat, you know.
1: Okay. Any reason for that? or um, Why not the Holocaust or... Harbor or some other Yeah, well,
2: they were too soon. soon. The Holocaust and Pearl okay. Harbor were, were way too soon. Uh, it w- the Brits were the ones who first began to say 9-11 is going to be what history looks back on and says is, is the same thing as the 95 Theses. Um, they, and I was offended, to tell you the truth, to the extent I have any right to be offended. I, I was offended by, by that because it seemed to me 9-11 was such a national disaster for us. That to take it and make it that sort of, I don't know, took it away from us or something. I don't know what my emotional reaction, I don't get a lot of emotional reactions to ideas, but this one really troubled me uh, in every way. And then they began to argue, but at that point, October 17th, 31st, 1517, didn't mean anything other than it was an academic convenience to be able to say, right there, we now know we're in it because there they are. In the same way, when you get to 9-11, right there, you know we're in it. The world has now changed so completely, it is so glocalized, to use their word, that now we're all in it. And they also had another reason that troubles me a little bit, Uh, and and I will tell you what it is, I'm not trying to be coy. Uh, The last three of these upheavals have always been characterized by a major clash with Islam. Uh, and that basis was the other rationale for it, that it was a major clash with part of Islam. Uh, and um, so that was the... And, and ultimately, I, I guess they're right. There's been no event that I know of, no event for 10, 12 years before 9-11, and certainly in the, 14, in the uh, 13 years since, that would in any way lay claim to the magnitude of the 95 on the door of Wittenberg. I just wish... I wish we had a different date, but I'm sure our grandchildren won't care. You know, it's just, yeah.
0: Heath. Hi, Phyllis. Hi. Um, I grew up deeply Southern Baptist, and uh, in that world, I had a really clear understanding and idea of the purpose of life and uh, the goal of the universe. And now that I am totally re examining all those beliefs, I feel like I've lost a sense. Uh, of what the purpose of the universe is. I know that's a huge question, but I would love to know with all of the work that you're doing, in your opinion, what is the purpose of the universe and how are we supposed to approach that question?
2: Can I give you the most absurd answer you'll ever get? Uh, And it's so simple that I I apologize. I think your question is one that if you live long enough, you have to ask. Uh, It certainly is one that I have asked. I honestly believe the universe is here to praise God. I truly think that's our job and our function, is to praise the Almighty um, and enjoy Him forever, which makes me sound like a Presbyterian, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I really do. I mean, we're not here to build anything or to make anything, right? What could we possibly build or make? We are here to celebrate the Creator, I think. I think that He got that from angels, all of scripture says he did, but they didn't have any free will. They didn't have any opportunity to say, I don't want to do that. And so we're created. Do we want to do it? I truly, I, you know, I don't know. It's, that's not a good theological answer, is it? You have got a uh, better answer?
1: No, I, I, think that's, I think that's fair. We're, are we here to do that? You said to praise God and to enjoy Him all our days, which does sound very yeah, impressive. Westminster. Him, yeah, are um, Are Those two different things?
2: No, I think they're from two faces of the same coin. Yeah, it's just an yeah. apposition. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so God created with the intention of sharing the glory, the beauty of, of existence. Of our sharing
2: the glory, of being able to see the glory. Yeah.
1: Beekner says that the miracle of it all is that I, who might not have been, am. Am. Mm-hmm. And he's yeah. And God share God. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did Buber say it was the great withdrawal? God decided to create it Could, other than himself and share it was a great sharing, yeah, and before I even had any sense of loving God, which is an odd sentiment, there's just this sense of underlying gratitude that yeah. there's a sharing with us, and that's
2: and the sheer magnificence yeah, the sheer you know that we are
1: we are My but I, who God, might
2: why him? would we be you know I mean ugly ragtag. Who would want us, Uh, you know? And why would you go to the trouble to make us if it weren't for that? And I I truly think that's The image of God. It's a very simple-minded answer, I guess. To
1: be created in the image of God and then to have in this new covenant that Christ was at the helm of, for us to have been created in the image of God and then for Pauline theology, even the writer of Hebrews, to reflect and say he was the image of God." God. I mean, we've heard that before. Imago Dei. That was what was said of us. And the deeper, the more deeply theistic I get, the more humanistic I get.
2: I never heard anybody put it. That would be true. Yes. Not humanistic in the absence of theism,
1: but in just the sheer splendor Uh, of humans. humans. And for God, in the end, to kind of pull the image of God into Christ, you know, was... Was Christ this exceptional event, or was this God trying to somehow say through time, this is where I've always been, in flesh, incarnate? And ultimately, now we have this thing, we're the body of Christ, and Jesus says, I'm going to get to the end, and I'm going to say, I was hungry, and you fed me, and we're going to be like,
2: when did I do that, Lord? And When did I see you hungry? He was always
1: in flesh. And so is the Acts 2 Pentecostal, he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh, is that a coming down or is that little by little a recognizing that we are indeed infused with the image of okay. God and all flesh all is poured flesh. out upon?
2: All flesh. All flesh. all flesh. all flesh.
1: Not all believers, no. all
2: flesh. All flesh. All flesh. All flesh.
1: Okay. In Adam, all die. Who went to the altar and accepted that?
2: Yeah.
1: In the second Adam, all are made alive. It, I don't think that's a diminishment of Jesus as much as it's just this unfolding. It's not even new. It's the unfolding of the magnitude. Little by little, we're recognizing that the ark of God's mercy and the swath of his love is far more vast that's than right. we supposed.
2: And it ought to scare the holy you know what right out of you.
1: Yeah. Why are you yeah. saying you know what? You've been cussing all day long. <laughs> <laughs> what
2: that's, the hell's wrong with yeah,
0: you? I <laughs> up
1: now.
2: I learned at the hands of an expert. My Southern Baptist mother could lay 'em out.
1: Really, I thought. That <laughs> oh, was, <laughs> I thought she was, she was, was classic. Okay. All right. Anybody else? I. Uh, yes, David. Right here, first. Go to David first.
0: And I, I'm curious. You, you sort of uh, accused us of being an emerging church.
2: Yeah, I think that you would qualify. I think any emergence coming in here would say, yeah, I know what they're well, doing. Well,
0: and, and I what I'd like for you to do, I mean, you've interacted with Stan a little bit. I'm sure that he's told you about a little bit about who we are, but tell us why you would, what about us causes you to identify us in that way? Yeah. And actually yeah. the fact that we would invite you would to come then. here and speak on a Sunday morning and then come back again on a Sunday evening with a fair number of us coming here to hear you again is off the table. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: because that, I'm, I was wondering that too, because I have avoided labels at all costs. I think Christian is a wonderful label. And the reason I've avoided labels here as an interdenominational church is because I really felt that there was this sense of pneumatology. The Spirit was Mm -hmm. drawing us and leading us. And I thought, as soon as you label everybody goes and reads somebody else's definition of that label and they shut the conversation down and now they think they know. Which is
2: the danger of labeling and perhaps and, I shouldn't have for that very reason. Well, when you were describing it, right. yeah. so
1: you said y'all are emerging, I'm like, oh, I've been avoiding that for 11 years and yeah. you just did that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, and, and then, and I just got to tell you, some of the things you were just, I'm thinking there's gotta be a lot of latitude in that because some of the things sure. you were describing tonight, I was like. Not me, that's baby. Not, what I think. And then you was describing Anglicanism. I was like, I think I'm a little dab of that. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, answer that question, please.
2: The uh, emergence, I did this with one group this morning and realized I didn't do it with the other. And uh, absolutely, I thousand percent agree with Stan. When you put labels on, it's bad. Uh, And uh, I probably shouldn't have done it. But one of the reasons I wanted to come was I wanted to see, I had heard your, your fame precede you. I had heard that this was uh, interdenominational that was beginning to look like an emergence group and I wanted to see, I just frankly was curious. Uh, emergence Christianity, and those of you who heard this morning, please forgive me for repeating, but emergence Christianity is a big overarching label. It's, it's a, a rubric, if you will, under which groups uh, uh, operate. Protestantism, it, when I say to you Protestantism, that's a big overarching label, right? And we all know what Protestants are, more or less. I mean, we could make a, a, a list that we would all more or less agree that's what a Protestant is. At the same time, we recognize that under that label, there are Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists sure. and Lutherans and yadda yada, yadda yada, yadda yada, yadda all of which are distinguishable from each other. They share these, but they differ on these subsequent points. In the same way, depending on whom you're quoting, there are six, seven, as many sometimes as 13 different things operating under emergence Christianity. One of them is emerging Christianity or emerging church, I N G. Another is emergent church or emergent Christianity, G E N T. They don't get along together very well anymore. It didn't used to matter, but they really don't. There are sharp differences, and they're getting sharper between those two. Uh, And then you've got the hyphenateds, people like me who want to stay in a tradition they were born in, but infuse it with emergent sensibilities. You've got neo-monastics, who absolutely fascinate me. There are about 10,000 neo-monastic communities in this country now. And they are the first, the reason they fascinate me, is that they are the first uh, to actually come up with a prayer book, a liturgy. They are very concerned about the transmission in, in the home uh, of the faith. And so they have, it's a prayer book, it's this thick, honest to goodness it is, and it's called A Book of Common Prayer, which sort of resonates with my tradition, right? But the full title is A Book of Common Prayer for Ordinary Radicals. And it's the prayers for every single day of the liturgical year. Uh, and they are beginning, they are also the first to have an international kind of organization. It's a, it's a website, but still uh, it's there. It's the international community of communities. So they fascinate me because of what they're doing um, and how they're beginning to do it. Um, there is Fresh Expressions of Church, uh, which began in England. and Emergence Christianity comes to this country last. Uh, it comes to this continent last. And I spend a lot of time jumping the Canadian border because uh, the Canadian, when, when I'm in Canada, I think, okay, they're about 15 minutes ahead of us. And when I'm in this country, I think we're 15 minutes ahead of them. I mean, it's that kind of nip and tuck uh, evolution of this thing. But but you've got, you've got the fresh expressions. You've got small church. You've got missional church. You've got home church. You've even got uh, cyber church, which nobody much wants to talk about uh, because it's there, but it spooks people who aren't, into second life and that kind of thing. Um, but, but there are, uh, you know, about 20 million Christians who worship at least sometime uh, during the year in cyber church, uh, which is a, a whole different thing. It's all electronic. It's, it's not in a physical space. But they share certain overarching things. They're all liturgical. They're all deeply aesthetic. Um, they all are allergic to hierarchy. Uh, they're not at all sure what they, you know, what they want. They're deeply communal. Uh, unlike you all, they don't like real estate. Uh, this was the great surprise when I saw your facility. Uh, they will, most emergents will say, let's get this straight. Easy $5 million. Easy $1 million to keep it up and pay the staff for the year, right? Don't you know there are people starving and you're doing this with your money? But it's always followed with, "We need a place to meet Tuesday night. Can we bar your cafeteria?" You know, which is, is so. Uh, you know, it, it, it makes okay. it makes no so sense. So, which
1: subspecies are we in the I, taxonomy? I just think
2: I think you're uh, I, I think you're. A group of Christians worshiping together without affecting den- uh, denominational lines, and that that makes you at least comfortable. And with we're the theologically
1: reflective and open and, and engaging and, and conversational. Right. And that's just about as emergence as you're going to get. And we're embracing <laughs> mystery. And okay, but here's my pushback on, on that that emergence Christianity. And I know you have to have yeah, labels. Sure. I think by definition, Christianity has always been emerging and unfolding.
2: Emerging is not the same as emergence. Okay,
1: emergence. Um, So I'm just thinking about the cognate, emerge, to emerge and to be growing. I mean, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, 2,000 years ago, he'll lead and guide you into all truth. When has he ever stopped doing that in the history of the church? When have we not been committed to transformation and change and shift and
2: innovation and all of that? Here we go. This is what I jumped in the first... uh, when I said it's an awful word, it sounds like something is emerging, doesn't it? It's the worst possible label. It just it invites the idea that something's coming up out of the ground. That's not where it came from. Emergence Christianity was 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 named uh, or termed or whatever by physical scientists. When Darwin, here we go, you're going to be so sorry, when, when, Darwin, <laughs> when Darwin came up with evolution in 1859, origin of species, and let's face it, it wasn't Darwin's idea. He copped his right. granddaddy's papers. We all know it. He just got to press first and his granddaddy died before he did, whatever. Anyway, when he got, when he got to press with it, uh, you know, almost every scientist agreed with him. Uh, that there is an evolution of the species, and there ultimately is going to be survival of the fittest, yada, yada, yada. But some of them who agreed that it was there also said that it, it, evolution does not explain the whole of what's going on, there is something more than just evolution. And the leader of that group, the most articulate of that group of scientists, was a man named Lewis, Lewes, L E W E S, if you want to look him up. H G W Lewes, George Lewes, he was called. And he wrote, uh, by, 19, by 1875, he's putting out some pretty serious tractates. Uh, and he writes right up until the turn of the century when he dies. But his theory is, and what he says is, that absolutely evolution explains the changes that we're going through. Clearly, things evolve. They go higher and higher into more and more effective ways to live. But every once in a while, something happens that cannot be explained by the careful analysis of its component parts. That is, he said, we have known from the get go that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But sometimes the whole is greater than a careful analysis of the constituent parts would ever lead you to think the sum would come to. Does that make sense? And which he said, human consciousness cannot be explained by evolution. The body can, the consciousness can't. It is a, fu- it is a function of emergence, which he said was that when a thing is evolving and its component parts are changing and all of this, There seems to be sometimes something that comes in this way, not hierarchical, not up from the bottom, not evolved, but something that comes this way that affects the organism and that affects uh, the atmosphere and the surrounding environment back and forth like this. He says human consciousness is an example of this, and he called it emergence theory. Now, when he dies, scientists lose a certain amount of interest in it. And then you get William James coming along, and James gets interested in it, and then you begin to get biologist, E.O. Wilson, if that means anything to you. E.O. Wilson is probably the most famous um, English-speaking um, entomologist working now. And he's got a wonderful novel called The, the, um, the Fire Hill the fire Queen is Dead. Is that? The, the Fire Queen is Dead, I think. Anyway, um, it, it's a great novel about this, in which he began to look at the fact that sometimes something comes in like this that can't be explained this way or superimposed this way. He takes Luz's theory, which is now emergence theory. And he begins, as did some of the earlier scientists who preceded him, begins to say, oh, we just didn't have a name for it. It, And there's a great book called The Starfish and, and the Spider, in which he says, if you take a starfish and throw it like this, You know, you will twist the leg off, right? And the starfish flies off somewhere and you've got the leg. And the starfish over there will grow a new leg and the leg will grow a new starfish. Why is that? And it's true. Whereas if you take a spider and do it this way, you'll pull the leg off the spider. The spider will go off and die if it doesn't bite you first. And the leg will crumble (laughs) up and go away. You know, what is the difference? The difference is that the starfish is composed or constituted, if you will, by emergence theory. That is, there are things that come, he also said, uh, or scientists said, the difference between, uh, if you ever watched a flock of birds and uh, they're going this way and then suddenly one abruptly comes from around back and takes over the lead and will lead them for maybe 30 minutes and then one from here will come over and take over the lead and the other one will drop back. Their emergence in organization, that's emergence theory at work. The best example, and it's the fire, the fire queen ant is dead is the name of the novel uh, that Wilson wrote about it. The difference between a beehive and an anthill is emergence theory, uh, which is, is to say, and, and it's a funny novel, it's a, it's a great novel, and it's just about, we always thought that each had a queen in our ignorance, and we had a queen to the beehive and a queen to the anthill. Well, that's their only similarity because they're entirely different things. We live in the country and we used to have five hives and the only thing you don't need is a sixth queen because it's hell on wheels until you get rid of one of the queens. You know, Everybody is unhappy and everybody's getting stung because you can only have one queen to a hive and she's going to rule that sucker right there. An anthill has a queen, but she's only good for one thing, one thing only. She takes one nuptial flight and a drone gets on board, and they can go for 22, 23, 24 hours before he falls off dead, which is not a bad way to go, Wilson says. But, you know, (laughs) he falls off dead, and the minute he does, she lands on the earth. And the only thing she ever has to do uh, is, in the first 24 hours, she has to continue to, she's going to birth out four to six larvae, and she has to continually lick them like this. For up to sometimes 48 hours, as they begin to come out, because she's at the bacteria-laden level of the top of the soil, and what she's doing is sterilizing them until they become, aren't you glad you came to church to hear this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> they will wiggle, and as they wiggle, they tear up the earth, and she goes down one level, and she will breed again. Uh, and, I mean, she will deliver again, uh, for more larvae, and they will, mount, which is what makes those, those n ant, anthills is that's what she's doing she's one queen and it's the larvae making this thing and she can go for as long as twenty two years off of one shot uh, and ladies that's a man uh you know but 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 when when it's out uh, this is vulgar right
1: but when 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 she's, I have forgotten the question I just got to tell you.
2: I, I'm trying to tell you what emergence means. Yes, that's yes. right. Yeah, that's right, what emergence means. And this is where it came from. Uh, and uh, so what what she does, uh, obviously, is she dies uh, after a while. And then the ant colony can either go join another one or they can just choose to die or they can stay there until they die. It's all over. There's nothing permanent about what they've built except this thing that they didn't mean to build. Uh, and there are fascinating things about the ant. we it's, it's because there's nobody in charge, nobody. Ants, for instance, uh, if you're curious, when something dies, uh, they, they will know to go and, and get rid of it, and go bury it. We don't know why it is, but all of the burial grounds for ant colonies are equidistant from all of the outlets to the hill itself, to the mound itself. Nobody knows how they do that. Nobody's been able to figure out how it is that they can find them equidistant. So wherever you die in the colony, you're an equidistant from the nearest portal out to the, to the burial ground. It's stuff like that. They work communally. Nobody is in charge. Nobody's in charge of, of the birds. Nobody's in charge of, of the starfish. It's a total communal thing. Those things which work on communal instead of top-down like that queen of, of the uh, hive, things that work from the, the, like this are called emergence. And emergence biology deals with this. And what you're doing here is by and large like this, right? Stan's not telling you what to believe, right? He's telling you, well, he's trying to prejudice your minds, but I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> but he's not, he's not telling you that it, it's not a top down. It's this. And wherever the major characteristic of emergence, whatever its brand or division, is that it's this, and it assumes that something comes in from the outside that is greater than the sum of the parts or any analysis of the parts could possibly produce. So that's what it means. What gets lost is who wants to hear that 10 minutes, uh, you know, a worth of explanation. And so it looks like something is emerging or coming. That's not where it came from. It came straight out of science labs, uh, and it means that kind of, of arrangement and organization.
1: It was, just from a Judeo-Christian perspective, when we had a piece of property Mm -hmm. and we were supposed to essentially build walls around it and be the people of God and everybody else could be other than us, and there wasn't really a lot of eternity to worry about. Mm -hmm. It was easier until it got harder. Mm -hmm. And then when we became more inclusive, we thought that maybe the walls would come down and we revisited Abraham and Isaiah and... Even Jeremiah posited, Ezekiel posited that maybe the walls would come down and all the nation would come. All the nations would come yeah. to Jerusalem. That's right. That's right. And then we lost. We hung our harps on the willow tree. We came back and we built a new temple and we wept because it just was a pathetic effort to recapture. And we waited and we waited and we waited. And the most zealous among us thought, no, this is going to happen. And then we had the Maccabean devastation and the Antiochus Epiphanes and and then Christ came and it rebooted and we were going to have a kingdom again. And then he gets crucified. And it was easy until it got harder. Every time the answer was easy until it got harder. And he gets crucified and then five hundred people above that see him and he comes back in the power of Pentecost. And we're rebooting, and we're going to do the kingdom mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be us, and it's going to be all flesh. And then we start the church, and we're somewhere between the walls and tearing down the walls. And, and we, after a few generations, we've been waiting on Jesus to come and just get us out of here so we could go to heaven. And that's just easier until it gets harder. And every generation that expected that from Paul's to ours, and we're just being forced to revisit what is essential Christianity. What is essential Christianity? What what was the message of Christ? I know that Paul believed the message of Christ was one thing that he died not fully wrapping his mind around, and. And for me, emergence Christianity is just a sense that 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 promise that the Holy Spirit would come, that promise was not fully satisfied in the first 100 years of the church.
2: Yes, you just said it. Did you hear what? Emergence, that's as beautiful a definition as you'll ever get. Yes, yes, (laughs) it it is. That's it. it. Say it again, she says.
1: um, we, We believe that that promise from John 14 that Jesus said... Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will lead and guide you into all truth. He did not give a disclaimer or an asterisk that said, and that will be satisfied in the first 100 years. Yeah. That guidance of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate Christology is a pneumatology. That's right. Jesus said, Absolutely. I'm going to send the Holy, the Holy Spirit, Spirit. That's right. and it's no going to be better than me. Yeah. And Mary said, no, 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 we want Christology, and He unfurled her fingers and said, no, you're grieved." but it's going to be better. Greater works than these sure you do. do When the body of Christ, pneumatology is Christology. The body of Christ didn't one man. It's millions now. And it's going to be better. And in the community of faith that is the body of Christ, filled with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that promise of the unfolding truth of God For me, in in your book, when you categorize the Pentecostal world that I come from as kind of this pneumatology that was almost saying this is above or beyond Scripture, we were, you probably weren't saying that, we were actually fundamentalist. We always said, yes, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal things, but it will never contradict Sola Scriptura. So we were still very fundamentally Protestant. And the Holy Spirit will tell us things doesn't our history indicate that the Holy Spirit has been unfolding truth decade after decade, century after mm-hmm. six, century, half millennia after half millennia, but we don't have to say that it's unfolding something new as much as it's uncovering something that has always been, that only now... Human consciousness has the capacity okay. to receive Okay, all right.
2: You're doing evolutionary spirituality. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I'll go there. I mean, yeah. you think yeah. God
1: changed his mind in the 19th century no. and told Wilberforce what to do?
2: No, 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 no. God no.
1: was thinking that way back That's when. Right. But human consciousness... But well,
2: what has changed is the level of familiarity that the Spirit is now allowing us. You've got to admit, from Azusa Street backward until you get to the upper room in the Pente- day of Pentecost, the... Over and over again, the familiarity, night after night, day after day, the ability to engage the spirit in a group really wasn't there no. on a reproducible basis. That's what Azusa does. But yes, absolutely. And, you're right. and, and in terms of scripture, it marks the beginning of it, doesn't do it.
1: And in terms of scripture, could Paul have said things that were beyond even his capacity to understand? Of course, because his Bible was Isaiah. And Isaiah didn't see a cross and a suspended Messiah right. when he wrote, "For unto us a child is born, and the son is given." That's right, he, Isaiah fifty-three, right. wounded for our transgression. Right. Isaiah, scriptural writers had the capacity to say things that would only unfold as human consciousness was ready for that's it. Right. That's, that's right. That's all we're saying, and that's, that's saying. always been the story. That's right. why when my, our friend Brian says a new kind of Christianity, I'm like, eh, it's an old kind of Christianity. Christianity. It's like, what we've always been doing. If we will just admit that, it's less of a fight, I think. And that's why when people say, well, you're doing this, I'm like, well, so have you been? (laughs) So have we always been doing this? And I, I think that's the Pentecostal side that was very appreciable for me because I come from five generations of Pentecostalism, and I know that at the beginning of one century, we were pathological to the rest of the body of Christ.
2: Yes, that's true. And
1: now we have not just become our own denomination we've infused That's oh, right. it's, the tributary it's the fourth has largest redirected religion
2: in the world if you put Pentecostals and, and Charismatics together
1: so that that for me and and what everybody's admitting now is okay y'all weren't heretically um, you know misdirecting scripture it was actually in there you may have been extreme but it was in there and so Spong says the tributaries sometime break off If they are truly hyresis and heretical, don't fret. They will backwash. They will backwash. The river can stand it. He's right. But sometime, whether it's Protestantism, Wesleyanism, Anabaptist, or the Pentecostal movement, sometime these little branches break off. We've got to admit in church history, sometime these branches break off. And over time, Gamaliel says, don't burn it at the stake. Watch it. Yes, and if it's of God,
2: it will. If it's of God, you don't want will. to be fighting that's it. Right.
1: And Spong it says time has proven that some of these heresies Are have not God. only not been heresy; they but have been the unfolding work of God. That's
2: right, and he's right.
1: And they have redirected the whole doggone river.
2: hmm And that's what's happening.
1: It's what's, what's always happening been happening, right
2: but it's really what's happening right now.
1: Yeah, I, I, okay, yeah, I'll give it's, you it's, that. It's it's, it's a major more.
2: tributary right now. Yeah,
1: I, yeah. I I I believe yeah. that, but that. Yeah. It's amazing that what people call my liberal progressive sensibilities actually are most informed by my Pentecostal sense of the guidance of the Spirit. That's because
2: the Pentecostal sensibility is presently very liberal. That's what
1: Jessica was trying to say. (laughs) So how do we frame that? So Jessica's point is, and we frame that for our kids how? Well, I I still don't think there's a better way for us to frame it than just there's this one called Christ. God came and said, follow me. And if we start there with our children, we can't mess up. And I I, I do think that the sensibility that the Wesleyan Pentecostal movement gave us is that these people are made in the image of God, infused, all flesh, and they have access to God. And as much as God can intuitively speak through that image and the baptism of His Holy Spirit in them, they must recognize with humility that their own discernment is not satisfactory. And if they'll live in community together, and we will, Pentecostalism, we will let all prophesy. That's right. Okay. Everybody has the capacity to, to pro- speak for as God. Long as long as we prophecy. are discerning
2: in group what is prophesied. He
1: said, let all prophesy, let the others, others judge. judge. For we prophesy in part. The and body of Christ, heart. the community of faith, That's is right. the living word of God. That's right. And the Bible is a part of that.
2: And the exercise of that at any big encompassing level has started with Azusa Street.
1: I, yeah. yeah.
2: And we're living in it. And we're confused as all get out. My what great-great-granddad
1: it is. and all those people weren't crazy. No. And it wasn't of the devil. No. We were tapped That's in right. our uneducated... And we just don't
2: quite know what to do with it or how to engage it or what, you know. We're struggling.
1: Isn't that amazing?
2: Yes, I mean, it is amazing. Um,
1: so much, yeah. but we've got to go home. Oh,
2: yeah. it's,
1: it's I... Uh, I I needed that catharsis with you there just as much as uh, anybody in this room. So thank you for coming. Oh,
2: thank you for Um, having me. I
1: loved it. I understood most of it. And uh, (laughs) you are either incredibly smart or crazy, and I think you're incredibly smart (laughs) because you have a lot of information crammed in that brain. But you're not only smart, but you're wise, and I do believe you're spirit-filled, and you have helped our congregation. And would you thank Phyllis Thickel for coming?
2: God bless all of you. God bless you.